Well, good morning. I'm Larry. I'm uh, just really excited to bring you this message. And if you are a child, I think it is a time for you to be able to go to your classes. If you are over... No, I'm just kidding. Go ahead. <laughs> well, good morning. Uh, just thank you, um, the music and worship team, just the work that you do every week. I mean, just in the preparation and the hard work. Uh, it just really is such a, a neat time of worship musically for the Lord, and so thank you so much for doing that. Um, I think if maybe you're catching on to the theme today, it's hope. As we lit the, the candle, the first Advent can, uh, candle for this uh, season is one of hope. And this morning, uh, I want to start with the, the passage from the Gospel of, of John. And Jesus uh, said to his disciples, "'Do not let your hearts be troubled.'" You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I love what a pastor and author Paul David Tripp says in his book, Come Let Us Adore Him, um, an Advent uh, devotional. The way, the truth, and the life was in the manger, causing angels to rejoice, Mary to wonder, shepherds to worship, and for us to have hope. The Christmas story clearly shows that the hope of the universe is a person. The Advent story is a hope story because it chronicles the coming to earth of the one who is hope, Jesus. Hope is a person. And his name is Jesus. Jesus is the way to God. Jesus is the truth from God. Jesus is life. Jesus does not just preach life or provide life. He is life. Let us pray. Dear Lord, please allow us to embrace Advent in the way that church intends. As a way to prepare for your arrival. May everything I do, every gift I send, every party I attend, every meal that I share, remind me to prepare space in my heart for you. For you are hope. You are the way, the truth, and the life. Amen. Now, we could be finished, but we're not, okay? <laughs> um, what is hope? Webster defines it in this way, it is a feeling of expectation and desire for a particular thing to happen. And a question for all of us this morning is, do you live a hope-filled life? I believe in many ways we're hardwired for uh, hope. We're made in the image of God and hope is part of how we were created, but often our hope is in the wrong thing. And thus, dashed hopes are problematic to living the life that we were intended to live. Our hope is often based on 
external circumstances, our needs being met, our desires being fulfilled, our dreams becoming a reality, they can be based on the horizontal aspect of the life, of life, of the created and not the creator. In a quite popular Christian song long, long ago, and this dates me, uh, by uh, a singer, Rich Mullins, he wrote, I, rather, I would rather fight you for something that I don't really want than to take what you give that I need. In his song, Hold Me, Jesus. In a sense, we live for our own sovereignty, designing our worlds that never work out exactly as we've planned or hoped for. We do not know best, yet we try. Is your life characterized by dread or that something out there bad is going to happen? Causing you to maybe live in despair, causing you to live maybe in a hopelessness. Desiring to seek direction, desiring to to seek truth, to seek a good life. And unfortunately, our experiences in life can make us lean towards despair or hopelessness because they just did not turn out the way that we planned. Things did not turn out the way that we dreamed. Things did not turn out the way that we hoped for. And whether it is politics, war, natural disaster, family troubles, sickness, job worries, etc. And there are plenty to choose from. And these are great encouraging thoughts for Sunday morning, right? There are plenty of these things that can throw us into this downward spiral or a tailspin. Furthermore, many of us are modern-day nomads living here in Madrid for a season. We're not in our home country. We may not even be here in another six months or a year. And we almost daily live with the idea of what is next? Where will we be in the future? Will my residentia be renewed? Will my company decide to place me in another city next Christmas? Our trust in things that are created opposed to the Creator often puts us on the shaky ground in everyday life. Our hope often is built on the horizontal us and not the vertical God. Let me say that again. We hope often in the horizontal us opposed to the vertical God. Why do I say this? Because this is my story. This is out of my journal. I hope and long for perfection. I hope and long for things to go smoothly. And I work hard to make sure that they do. I hope and long for my needs to be met. I hope and long for comfort and stability and for the trains to run on time. Or metro. Or taxis. I want things that I don't really need. None of these things are now in a perfection state. But what I love about Christmas, what I love about Christmas is anticipation. 
Putting Up the Christmas Tree and Playing Tennessee Christmas by Amy Grant. And being from the great state of Tennessee, this is like our annual Christmas song. This is our tradition. And if you're not from Tennessee, it's okay. But it's, it's a song. And I'm not going to sing it. <laughs> Eric, <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> Are they walking around the city and seeing the beautiful Christmas lights? That was just Friday night. They're beautiful this year. They're beautiful most years, right? Watching Christmas movies. Now, we could spend some discussion time. What is your favorite Christmas movie? And is Die Hard really a Christmas movie or not? But that's one of my favorite. Or going to Christmas parties and throw, or throwing Christmas parties and cannot forget the cool sweaters. I don't want to say ugly because they're cool. And last but not least, let's talk about Christmas gifts. This person got a lot of gifts. Not our kids, not even our grandkids. I love giving gifts, but let's talk for a moment about receiving gifts. Now, I remember when I was about 10 years old. Now, we're talking a long, long time ago, okay? That's why that's in black and white. And that's what a typical living room would look like in our area, right? Our family celebrated Christmas in our almost sacred living room. That's why I took this picture, right? Uh, it's clean. <laughs> um, almost sacred because we almost never went in there. I mean, we literally never used it. It was classic Americana in the 60s. Our sofa was never sat upon. The fireplace was never used, but it was a nice one. We had a coffee table with this large Bible. And I don't know if you can see this or not, but it's probably about the size of that Bible, and it was on our coffee table. We had a collection of untouched National Geographics magazines. We even had a piano that none of us in my family knew how to play. But it really looked good in the room. But for some reason, our Christmas tree always went up in the living room. Again, this is not our house or our apartment now for sure. I still remember going there in the early morning hours or at night and turning on the Christmas lights and sitting in this otherwise dark room marveling at the lights. It was magical. It was meaningful for me. I actually do this today in our little apartment here in Madrid. But this particular year that I'm recalling, I was hoping for a very special gift. I wanted my very own fishing rod and reel. This was important for a 10-year-old. My father would take me fishing, but I always had to use this old rod and reel. And furthermore, it's for right-handers and, and right-handed people. And I'm left-handed. And that sounds like a minor issue, but being left-handed is complicated. The world and all of its stuff created for right-handers. But I'm not going to vent. I'm going to move on. I was certain I would get a new rod and reel for Christmas. 
I had hope. Remember our theme. Remember, hope is a feeling of expectation and a desire for a particular thing to happen. That was me. I was even extra nice to my sister <laughs> during, from May to December and respectful to my parents. My name would be on the nice list for receiving gifts. Our family tradition was that my parents would wrap some gifts under the tree, and then on Christmas morning, we would see a stuffed stocking with candy and toothbrush and socks for the year and other random items that no one ever knows or remembers. And we would get another gift or two that would be unwrapped. And those unwrapped gifts were the ones that we really anticipated. They were the big ones that came in sizes that were too difficult to wrap. And I would be the first getting up on Sunday mornings, but I was not allowed to go into the living room before we all went in together. So I just sat patiently outside the door waiting for my parents to get up. And my father loved to sleep in on Christmas morning. <laughs> and so I waited and I waited, not always patiently. My dad's finally up. We get to go back into the, into the living room, and it's in time to enter the holy of holies of our living room. And sure enough, I did see an unwrapped gift. And I'm sure I liked it, though, to this day I do not remember what it was because it was not my fishing rod and reel. Oh, my sister got what she wanted. Yeah, great. She was happy. lolly da. I was happy for her. I at least tried to. I went through the emotions. I smiled. That's great. Glad you got your gift. And we went ahead and opened the other gifts. And I know I was showing disappointment because I cannot hide disappointment very well. And finally, when, when all of the gifts were open, my dad says, um, I think we're missing a gift. It must be here somewhere. Larry, look under the couch and see if it is there. And I did. I had my fishing rod. Yay, I was so happy. Um, my shiny new reel and a nice rod, I was ready to go fishing. Now, sure, and this, and this is what we call, like in the States, this Hallmark Christmas story, right? It's, it had the perfect ending. I received the gift that I wanted. I remember other times it did not turn out that way. When I was 16, and for some reason I still do not know today, and I definitely understand this because we have kids that grew up in this age. When you're 16, you're allowed to get a driver's license. And I'm telling you, it is not as hard to get as the driver's license is here in Spain. It's pretty much check off the box, you've got your license. And then, furthermore, you can have a car and drive that car at 16. And so when I was 16, I hoped that I went to the living room, and my dad would simply say, wow. You know, Larry, look outside the window. This gift could not fit inside the house. It's your brand new car. It's a Ford Mustang. <laughs> you know, back then we didn't know European cars, right? But that did not happen. <laughs> Believe me, that did not happen. Now, Christmas is not always about that perfect present that brings fulfillment of hopes, right? It can also be about missing family and longing for a reunion or a fractured relationship and hoping it will be repaired. All of these things are good to hope for and long for, but as we enter the Advent season, 
It's about the hope of the Messiah, and our hope is a person. When we read Isaiah earlier in the service, it was a story of hope as well. For the Jewish people were hoping for a Savior. Jesus had not yet arrived on the earthly scene. The people of Israel were in despair, both as a nation and as a people. Yet the prophet Isaiah announces the coming of the Messiah. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulder. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is good news. And as we start the Advent season this morning, we can have hope. Do you remember the announcement of the newborn Savior, um, newborn Messiah found in the Gospel of Luke? Let me read it. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those whom his favor rests. We love this Christmas story. And in our passage this morning... Some 30 years later, the Messiah is with his disciples, and he, dis he senses they are in despair. This conversation happens on the last night before the crucifixion, during the Passover meal that we read about in John 13. He had just washed the disciples' feet. He predicted his betrayal by Judas. He talked about how Peter would even deny him three times before the rooster crowed. And he told his disciples that he would be soon going away. Just normal dinner time conversations. <laughs> After all, he was talking about his impending death. He was talking about not being with them and how they could not follow, and follow him and what he was about to do. And all these things started prompting questions about where he was going and why they could not follow them. They were troubled. They felt like they did not have hope. And Jesus speaks to them. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. He spoke to them about their future. One commentator, Frank Gablin, writes, the structure of this dialogue offers this contrast between attempt of Jesus to provide some consecutive teaching in preparation for his departure and then this nervous unrest of the disciples who are disconcerted by the awareness of this impending danger. And he was bridging this and he was preparing a place for them and he's preparing a place for us. He talks about home. He talks about true home, a place where we are in the presence of the Lord forever. What do you think of when you think of home? Where you're born? Where you're raised? And your family may be now? Where you live now here in Madrid? In a sense, all of these are home for me. 
We've lived in so many places around the world with our ministry, and, and I honestly cannot keep track of it. We're from Knoxville in the southern part of the U.S., thus having what we call a southern accent. We moved to Fort Worth, Texas for seminary twice. We also lived in Chattanooga, Atlanta, Dallas, Madrid, Condon, Germany, Louisville, Kentucky, and now Madrid again. All of these places are special to me, but I actually call Knoxville Madrid home. We live here and our hearts are here, but they are also in Knoxville where we have family and three grandchildren. Three. <laughs> and uh, we remember them often. Um, but it's also where the sights and smells are of the familiar. And in verse 3, when Jesus says, I'll come back. It is one of the few eschatological allusions in this gospel. Jesus was not speaking of this general revelation, but his personal concern of his own disciples. Though he did not elaborate on the promise, the guarantee is unmistakable. His return is as certain as his departure, and he would take them with him to his father's house, home. His promise does not refer to death. Jesus left by the road of death. He will return by the road of life. And as he said later in this same discourse, um, before long the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. But as Christ's followers, our eternal home is in heaven, in the presence of God dwelling forever. Revelation 21 um, gives us such hope. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God, and he'll wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things have passed away. We are home, our eternal home. Please hear these words. I need them, and I believe you may need them as well. Our hope is vertical. It is towards God, and our hope is a person, Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man. Now, here's the simple outline for today found in verse 6. Let's read it. Jesus answered, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So, the three points are... Um, Jesus is the way, Jesus is the truth, Jesus is the life. First, and do not panic, these go pretty quickly, okay? Jesus is the way to God. Listen to the words of Isaiah, Isaiah 42, 40, verse 2. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert, a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. 
and follow that up with John 14:2. My father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that where I'm going, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Gabriel also writes of this passage where Jesus tells them that he is preparing a room. And it's this imagery of a dwelling place. Rooms taking from this, the idea of an oriental house in which the sons and daughters have apartments under the same roof as their parents. And as believers, as Christ followers, we have the solid hope of dwelling with God for all of eternity. Don't think of a, maybe a nice hotel, but instead of a home, your home, your dwelling place for the greatest reunion, and it will last forever. Jesus goes on by saying, you know the place where I'm going. And Thomas, and I just love Thomas. Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? I love his honesty there. He's thinking physically. Jesus is thinking on the spiritual realm. Thomas on the, on the physical. His work was not finished at this point. He knew that he was headed. Jesus knew that he was headed to the cross, the cross where he would bear our sins. Jesus, being perfect, a sinless sacrifice for our imperfect and sinful souls. The cross where he paid the penalty for our sins so that we may have life. When he says he is going to his father's house and preparing a room for you, it was not like he was in the middle of this reconstruction project in heaven. It wasn't needing a remodel or a do-over. He was talking about his impending death and resurrection. This is his preparation, and it was not yet finished. This was where he was about to go. This is where he is answering Thomas's question about the where. John Piper writes about it in, in a very powerful way and language. In other words, I go to prepare a place for you, and as I go, I become the way that you get there. I am the truth that you hold on to to get there, and I am the life, the eternal life that you will enjoy when you get there. When I say I go to prepare a place, I mean I open the way, and I am the way. I confirm the truth, and I am the truth. I purchase life, and I am that life. Second, Jesus is the truth from God. The truth is a person. God's word is true, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So the truth in the life of Jesus. D.A. Carson, who is a professor, actually one of my professors from Trinity School in Chicago, writes this in his commentary on John. Jesus is the truth because he embodies the supreme revelation of God. He himself narrates God and says and does exclusively what the Father gives him to say and do. Indeed, he is properly called God. He is God's gracious self-closure. His word made flesh, fully man, fully God. Pastor Jason Sorosky writes, Each of us are capable of knowing the truth, but none of us can claim to actually be truth. Think about it. There are too many things we don't know. Too many things we can get wrong throughout our lives, yet Jesus claims to be truth and in so doing claims to be one with God. The words of John 1.1 set the stage for this very fact. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
In this one sentence, John is proclaiming in his gospel Jesus as the Word, which would have suggested that he is the beginning, the culmination of all that has been throughout eternity, and that to seek truth ultimately leads us to seek him. When we seek to figure out what is truth and what is a lie, we can measure it against the words of Jesus, who himself is truth. We live in a world that is screaming at us that there's no absolute truth, that truth is relative. But as Christ followers, we believe God is truth and his word, the holy scriptures are true. We must hold on to this. David Matthias, who's a writer and pastor, wrote, John's gospel is particularly insistent on Christ as divine son, not only being true, but the truth. Jesus himself, of course, says famously to his disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He is not a true, he's not just true among other truths, but the truth, the one way, one who truly matters. I love this verse found in John 8, 31 and 32, to the Jews who had believed him. Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. And then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We not only may know mathematics, some of us, not me, music, science, history, but specifically we can know the truth, the good news from God that Jesus saves us as sinners. Truth is a person. Lastly, Jesus is life. Jesus does not just preach life does not just provide life, he is life. There's only one God and he became a man in the person of Jesus. But if Jesus is, in fact, God himself, that puts him, his claim in an entirely different light. An infinite being has the ability to say with certainty whether there's one God or many, whether there are multiple ways to know him or one. Jesus doesn't say that he merely speaks the truth, he claims to be the embodiment of truth. He doesn't say he can give life. He tells us that he is the source of life himself. He doesn't just say is one pathway to God among many. He asserts that he is the only way, and that way gives you life. Perhaps one of my favorite life verses is John 10.10. A thief comes to only steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I think Jesus here is saying that you'll have life that is eternal. And I also think he's saying you're going to have life that can be abundant here on earth. Now, this is not a guarantee that we're going to get everything that we want. We're going to get every Christmas present that's, you know, that we've always desired, that we're going to live a life of abundance. This is not health and wealth theology. The truth is that we will not have everything that we think that we need. But what we do have in abundance is the ability to abide in him day in, day out. And that gives us a rich and life-giving continually. John Piper writes, you recall how this gospel works. God, John tells us in John 20 21, the purpose, these things are written so that you may, be, may believe Trust, be assured, 
treasure the reality that Jesus is the Christ, the promise-filling Messiah, the Son of God, the presence of God himself, God the Son among us, and that by believing you will have life in his name. And when he says life, he means the connection with God's life through this connection with Jesus, and that life includes the power to have, not to have unholy turmoil of the soul. We do not have to worry. We have hope. Jesus is life. Just as I began the message with a thought from Paul David Tripp, I, I found uh, this in, in his book on the Advent. Because we're made in God's image, we're hardwired for hope. You and I are always putting hope in something. If you listen, you'll realize that we communicate hope in a variety of ways and almost all of the time. I sure hope it doesn't rain today. It's so cold here, maybe it should be. I should have said snow. I sh hope she is not mad at me. I hope I can do what I promised. I hope they can win the championship. I hope they can get along for once. I hope this sickness isn't something serious. I hope when I get home, there'll be something to eat. I hope I can do something worthwhile in my life. I hope what I believe proves to be true. I'm persuaded that the language of hope is on our lips so much because we live in a world where hope seems temporary and is just often dashed in our work, in our family, as citizens, in our own personal lives. We all deal with a lot of broken hope. And it's not unusual for the thing in which we willingly place our hope to fail us, whether that's a person, place, or thing. <laughs> in fact, we get to the place where we're afraid to hope anymore. And Christmas comes around and we go, okay, it's a hope time again. Because we're sure we'll be disappointed once again. We can't stop hoping because God created our lives to be propelled and directed by hope. And he meant our capacity for hope to drive us to him. God is not just perfectly holy. He is also bountifully loving. God is our only source for steady, unshakable, eternal hope. His holiness is our hope. His love is our hope. And the Christmas story preaches to us both the holiness and the love of God. The Christmas story reminds us that hopelessness is only the doorway to true and eternal hope. It's only when you give up on you that you seek and celebrate what God in holy love, offers you in the person and the work of his Son and our Lord Jesus Christ. It's true that hope isn't a thing. It's a person. His name is Emmanuel. Celebrate hope this Christmas. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, loving Son, comforting Spirit, we thank you for the hope you give us this day. As we enter this Christmas season, enjoying the lights, enjoying the gifts, enjoying our gatherings, may we remember the hope that you give to each of us. Thank you for showing us the way by giving up your life on the cross so that we may live. Thank you for being the truth in a world that says there is no real truth, only our experience. Thank you for giving us life because you are life. You are the good news. 
And I pray today, dear God, if anyone is here and does not know you personally, that you'll speak to them. You'll show them the way, the hope that you can only give. Bring them to repentance of sin and trust in you and embrace the hope eternal. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.